0: Thanks, Adrian. It'd be great to uh, keep that part of uh, God's Word open. That's where we're going to be focusing this morning in Titus chapter 3 as we bring our little series in this book to a conclusion. I'm going to pray and ask God's help for this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the good God. Not only did you author this work, but you are here today, present with us to apply it to our hearts. Father, we pray that you might do that work now by your Holy Spirit, Challenge us and change us as we are made more and more into the image of your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, today we're going to have a little bit of a focus on our life and what it's worth. And if life is a gift, I guess the question is, what are you doing with it? If life is a gift, what are you doing with yours? And uh, I guess there's two ways to kind of think about this. Some of us uh, will be living a fruitful life fruitful life, a life that is abundant and joyful and providing, and some of us might be living an unfruitful life, and so that's the empty fruit bowl. Uh, now, what, what does it look like to live a fruitful or an unfruitful life? Well, I was really struck this week, uh, read a little report in the paper about a guy called Piawatt Harakan. I don't know if you heard of him Uh, a 17-year-old boy living in northern Thailand, and he made the news in the last week because he died gaming in front of his computer. Apparently, he hadn't stopped gaming for three days straight, and he was found collapsed, having had a heart attack, in front of his computer. Now, guys, by any sense, that is a tragedy, Particularly with someone so young. But to have brought a premature end to your life for the sake of pixels online in a game seems to be the ultimate in a fruitless life, doesn't it? It's a true tragedy. In contrast, I want to introduce you to somebody who was a member here at New Life, in fact, was a partner here at New Life. His name's Jeff Corkill. And uh, he was Bev's husband, wonderful man, really wonderful man. Many of you know Jeff? Some of you do, some of you might remember. Extraordinary man. Uh, Jeff uh, died uh, way before his time, um, cancer. Uh, But as he was going through his cancer treatment, this is a a picture of him being interviewed up the front in the church, Uh, he was telling us to keep trusting in Jesus, and when he died, uh, his family sent me this little email. And I wanted to read you just part of it because I think it's profoundly beautiful. Today our dad, Jeff Corkill, passed away and entered into the presence of Jesus. Whilst we are saddened at our loss, we've also been laughing, at the, uh, laughing lots at the many crazy antics and jokes for which our dad was renowned. Dad was a great man who invested his life into relationship with God and others. Early next week, we'll communicate funeral details. Guys, I went to that funeral. I've been asking people recently, have you ever been to a great funeral? Have you ever been to a great Christian funeral? Some of you are nodding your heads. Some of you are looking at me like, what's a great Christian funeral? How how can you have such a thing? I want to tell you guys, when I was at Jeff's funeral, I saw person after person stand up and declare the goodness of God first and then his work through Jeff. Jeff the goodness of God and his work through Jeff, the way that he had touched so many people's lives with care as he walked alongside them and pointed them to Jesus. Now, guys, that is the very definition of a fruitful life. And that's what's at stake today as we read through Titus chapter 3. See, fruitfulness really matters. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says this, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Jesus is talking to the leadership of Israel and he says, if you're not fruitful, God will take that away from you and give it to those who are doing the work of my kingdom. In John, Jesus says these extraordinary words. You remember, uh, Jesus says that "I, I am the vine and you are the branches. Here's what he says. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we want to be people who bear fruit? Well, I hope so. How will you do it? You can't do it aside from Jesus. He says a little bit later in uh, chapter 15, verse 8, "'This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples.'" In other words, people will know that you're disciples of Jesus by the fruitfulness of your life. It'll actually be a way other people can tell whether you love and serve Jesus. So what does it look like to be someone who's having this fruitful life in Crete? That's where Titus, this letter that we're reading, was written to. What does it mean to be living a fruitful life in Crete? Well, uh, we've been thinking a little bit uh, about the fires recently, and there's, there's two types of readiness. Uh, if you asked the fireys uh, when they came and visited us, I think this was last year, um, they would have said, yep, we're ready. But, you know, on a, on a cool day when nothing's burning and it's been raining a little bit, the readiness is different to what it would be this week, wouldn't it? There's an urgent readiness, and there's a, yeah, I guess, I guess everything's in order kind of readiness. And what we want to see here is the kind of readiness that we are supposed to have as the people of God. Have a look with me. We're in Titus chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be, pers- to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Now, that's a pretty good general encouragement, isn't it? Some words that that seem to be pretty good. Why does he pick these specific words for those who are in Crete? Well, you might remember earlier in chapter 1, Paul quotes one of their prophets. He says, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, uh, every stereotype uh, is both uh, applicable And not applicable, in the sense that no stereotype sticks if no one's like that, right? But no stereotype ever encompasses everyone. It's a generality. Nevertheless, the generality about Crete is that they're liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Well, what what does Paul say to them? Well, he says they're called to a different life. They're to be obedient, not rebellious. They are to be ready and no longer lazy, they're to be truthful, not slanderous liars. They're to be gentle, not brutal. And it's worth saying here, we had a good discussion at the, uh, the men's life group on Tuesday night. Uh, when he says to be gentle, he's counteracting a, a, a quality in them that could be generalized as evil brutes. Right? So as a society, they're evil brutes. So when he says be gentle to everyone, what he's trying to do is push the needle hard the other way. And you might think, well, hey, do you just want me to be gentle, do you? Like, do I just. And you think, what a weak, terrible, floppy thing to be. But Jesus was gentle. That, That was his characteristic. However, it didn't mean that he wasn't firm. It meant that his first response was not brutality, it wasn't physicality. He had a mindset of care. And so we are called also to be gentle, not brutal. Lastly, he says that they're to be considerate, and, and I take that to be in, in uh, contrast to gluttonous. See, when I'm a glutton, I need the chip bowl in my lap. It might be our chip bowl, but when I'm there, it's my chip bowl. And so that to be a glutton is not to be considerate of others. And so Paul here is pushing hard and saying, if they're to have a new life, It must show in every aspect of their community. Now, I I think there's a little bit of rebelliousness in our community. I think this is actually endemic. It's low-grade rebelliousness, okay? but it's all over the place. And you've heard me say this before, but I think this colored light here is the perfect example. What does this light mean? It means speed up. Yes, somebody was honest. Okay, that's what it means. It means speed up. And Carolyn and I are often sitting there in the car when I've got a green light and there are still cars going across in front of me and we say to each other, deep orange. (laughs) They're still going through on a deep orange, isn't it? That's what it must be. I've, I've, I've got a green light, but clearly they've only got a deep orange. Is that what's happening? This selfish rebelliousness is actually everywhere through our society. We see it manifest on the road, but I can't think, the person who who says, look, my time is more important than the safety of everyone else on the road, that that doesn't manifest in other areas of their life. So I think rebelliousness is actually everywhere in our society, just in little social ways. Have a look at verse 3. Paul says, at one time we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What a terrible little description this is. See, here at New Life, you'll be surprised to know that we always talk about new life, right? But here's the thing about talking about new life. Do we have an old life? Are you with me? It's one thing to talk about, you know, we want you to find new life in Jesus. If you have, do you have an old life, the life you used to live? Do you have an old life? Notice that Paul is happy to admit that he does. He says that at one time, we too were foolish. Do you see that? See, the church shouldn't be full of people who are the best, greatest children, the the most amazing teenagers, the the young 20s who never did anything. That's not, that's, the church shouldn't be full of that. It should be full of people who are able to say, in the past, before God showed his mercy to me, I was like this. It shouldn't surprise us that we have history. It shouldn't surprise us that we have a past. In fact, arguably, if we don't, we're probably in denial. If we're to talk of a new life, we need to have an old life too. And what an old life it was. Foolish disobedient and deceived. Foolish, disobedient and deceived. It's not very complimentary, is it? Some of you are thinking, I quite like that. No, it's terrible, isn't it? Foolish, disobedient and deceived. In fact, he goes on to talk about their slavery to passions and pleasures. Their slavery to passions and pleasures. Look, I've been thinking about this for a little while, And I think as a church, collectively, as a society more generally, we need to mind the gap. We need to mind the gap. What do I mean? There are three particular besetting sins for our culture at the moment. These are not the only ones. But I think gambling, alcohol, and pornography are very significant enslaving passions of our society. G-A-P. Gambling, alcohol, pornography. How do we know that these things are enslaving us? Well, we see all sorts of things. We see a general appetite in our community to consume above and beyond, above and beyond. We see a compulsion, just one more, only one more time, it won't make too much impact in my own home, quietly and privately. We see appetite, we see compulsion. I don't know that we see shame, but I think we feel it. Whenever we find ourselves enslaved, we find ourselves shamed. Because we are no longer calling the shots, because something else, an appetite, has overtaken us. Appetite, compulsion, shame, and inevitably, loss. Consuming in excess and outside of God's good plan, we will suffer loss. Personally, as a family, as a household, we will suffer loss. And that loss, if you look at those three different things, could be financial, could be physical, could be deeply psychological. These losses are part of our society And so when Paul says here that this is the life that we used to live, he is speaking of a world that we still resonate with. Don't we, church? Don't we see this? Don't we experience the challenge of this? Well, he goes on and says, not only are we enslaved, but listen to this description. He says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Being hated and... And hating one another. Now, guys, this is a this is a terrible circle, isn't it? Have you heard of a virtuous circle? This is where one good thing leads to another. Here's a vicious circle where one thing destroys, consumes, and it goes on and on and on. And some of you might recognize this as your workplaces, as your homes, as your friendship group. Hating and being hated by one another. What a terrible description. This is the very definition of the fruitless life, isn't it? Envy and malice. Seeking to destroy and consume one another. What a terrible picture. And it's interesting to note, Paul is never afraid to show us the depths of human sin. He's never afraid of it. We might be. And we go, gee, I wish that wasn't in my Bible. But here's the thing, church. I suspect by the certain quietness that we have in this room right now that it doesn't sound like that doesn't apply. In fact, it sounds like we get that. We see that. We understand that. And so here it is, truth. It's speaking truth to us. And yet it's really deep. It's, it's actually quite overwhelming. But he never leaves us there. He never leaves us there. I like to say, when you think it's as dark as it can be, look out for a butt. Look out for a but. If I can say this respectfully, there are some great buts in the Bible. Have a look with me at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Verse 4, but, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, through whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Do you see that? But when, Paul never, God never leaves us in the depths, he always points us to the light. Well, I want, to, I want to unpack that beautiful little passage and see God's salvation here. See, first of all, that God moves. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, who's the first mover? God is the first mover. He takes the initiative. He finds us when we were hating, rebellious, foolish, and deceived. Have a look what it says in Ephesians 2.8. I know you know these words, but it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. What salvation do we see here? We see a God who moves first and a God who gives us salvation. Praise God. Well, secondly, we see that God saves. God saves. In verse 5 it says, He saved us. Now, some of you uh, didn't get taught um, grammar when you were at school. Is anyone like that? They they didn't teach us any grammar at school. Um, I went to learn a a second and a third language at uh, Bible college, and I had to learn English first before I could learn anything about Greek and Hebrew. But but when it says, God saved us, is that present? Is it past? Is it future? God saved us. It happened When? Happened in the past. It's a completed work in the past. What does that tell us? God has saved you. God saved us. He's done it in the past. It's been completed. God saves. And when does he save? Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. But because of his mercy. Then uh, it says in Luke 6.35, then your reward will be great and you'll be called children of the Most High. Listen to these words. I love them so much because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. What does it mean for God to save us in his mercy? He gives us what we don't deserve. Don't you find yourself crying out for justice, particularly when that person goes through the red light in front of you? I wish there was a speed camera. I wish someone... We want justice. Until it comes to me... And then I want to get off. I'm a sinner. I deserve God's judgment. But what does God give me? Not what I deserve. That's what it means to be saved by grace. God saves. And then we see not only does he save us, but he renews us. Have a look at what follows. He saved us, says it again, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. I love this. I, I, just, I just love this. There is no shipwrecked life. There is no shipwrecked life that is beyond the redemption of God. What do we need? What do we think? Oh God, I'm just, I'm, I'm done, I'm finished. There's no hope for me. He says, I will give you rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit. And notice how he's poured out the Holy Spirit. He says, it pours it out generously. There's this wonderful little verse in John 3 where it says, For God gives the Spirit without limit. God uh, causes you to be reborn. He causes you to be washed. And then he fills you with his Holy Spirit to renew you again and again. What a beautiful salvation. Fourthly, we see God appoints. He says in verse 7, So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Well, what does an heir do? Does provide you spelling it the right way? It inherits. An heir inherits. What do we inherit? We inherit with Jesus. Have a listen to what it says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. When it says that you and I have been appointed heirs, we are heirs with and alongside of Jesus. You and I will inherit the kingdom prepared for the Son of God. You and I are not only saved, but appointed to reign with Jesus. What a beautiful salvation it is. If it's true, then I want to ask you this morning, have you received this salvation? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, it sounds great, where do I sign up? Today, here, you can say, Lord Jesus I want to have you forgive me. I want to be renewed. I want to be washed. Today is a great day to be saved. I want to ask those of you who are saved, are you moved by this salvation? Yeah, yeah, I'm deeply moved. I mean, I'm delighted. I'm really, I'm, I'm stoked. Go, Jesus. That'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it, Church? And look, you don't have to be basting out of your skins this morning, but if hearing the salvation of God, which is utterly undeserved, doesn't stir you, brothers and sisters, i got nothing else for you. This is it. This is the thing we're here for, and it's beautiful, and I want to ask you, if it has moved you, do you long for it for others? See, as a church, we long to see new life in Jesus come to every home, in Oran Park, and the growing Southwest for their salvation, for the good of the community and the glory of God. That's what we're here for. And if you've got it, you want to give it. If you've got it, you want to give it. This is the very definition of the fruitful life. I treasure and I pass on. I give and I live the message of new life in Jesus. Well, we've got some language that's about to turn up in the, in the passage here about being devoted. And uh, this is Onishi. He started a restaurant called Suta uh, in Japan, and uh, it makes noodles. And it's got nine seats in it. And he was the first noodle bar in Japan to get a Michelin star. Why? Because the man is utterly devoted to the perfection of noodles. And he just does an extraordinary job. So nine seats in the restaurant and he has a Michelin star. Why? Absolute devotion. What is devotion? Devotion is to bring the best of ourselves. To bring the best of ourselves to a task. So I want you to hear afresh what it says here in verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want to stress these things so that those those who have trusted in God may be careful, see this, to devote themselves to doing what is good these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Brothers and sisters, you can be devoted to noodles if you want. But I've got something better for you. It might be new to you to be devoted to doing what is good, but that's what we're being called to today, to be devoted to doing what is good. I want you to see how he sets this up. This is the beautiful order of salvation. We just saw salvation is beautiful, right? And the beauty of salvation leads us naturally to fruitful good works. I want you to see that it doesn't work the other way. I don't work really hard to be good enough to God and he rewards me with salvation. That is not what happens. He graciously saves us and then calls us to pour out our life in a thank offering for his grace. Do you see that? It goes that way. Secondly, I want you to see that God has prepared good works for you to do. Isn't this extraordinary? Have a listen. In uh, this wonderful passage in Ephesians 2, it says, For we, church, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Notice this, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that extraordinary? God, you know when people say God's got a beautiful plan for your life? Wonderful. True, true. What if the beautiful plan isn't about you becoming CEO or or, or whatever? Maybe that's not the plan. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But here's the thing I know for sure. God has prepared good works for you to do right where you are right now. You don't have to wish now away to be in the plan of God. Do you see that? You can know now that you're in the will of God because you're doing the good works that He has prepared Paul needs to throw in a warning for this church, and he warns them against being divisive. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. But, fo- but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, they have nothing to do with them. You can be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. See, we need to define division well. Some things you need to divide over. If you have somebody, maybe at some point in the future here, who who stands up and says, look, Jesus, he paid for the good people on the cross and the bad people, they're just getting what they deserve. Not like you excellent people here. If someone was to preach that, you should stop them. If they continued here, you probably should divide from them. It's at the very heart of our salvation. However, there are lots of things that we can debate. And when we debate and decide to divide divide on debatable matters, Paul is saying, guys, don't waste your time. There is a place for rightful contending, but it isn't around genealogies and arguments that are foolish controversies. Persistent dividers are to be left behind, have nothing to do with them, Paul says. Well, you guys, uh, many of you will have uh, a little investment going uh, called super, yeah? Uh, We make a little contribution and uh, it all sort of stacks up and from little things, big things grow or something like that, right? Well, Here's the idea. Have a look at verses 12 and following. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now it sounds like we just got back to a letter, didn't it? it sounds like a letter written to real people in actual history. And uh, what we see here is an encouragement to be hospitable towards the saints to have healthy hearts, and to live profitable lives. Verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unprofitable lives. Here's what I think, guys. I think making these decisions is a little bit like a contribution to super. Every week, you can't live on what goes into super, is that right? Unless some of you are in a different scheme to me. But what do we do? a little bit, a little bit, a little bit over time, and it adds up to something extraordinary, right? Investing in that little thing. I think we can invest in our devotion to good works in a new way, and that you will see something extraordinary come to to fruit. Okay, so here's the application, right? Do good. Boo, it's really boring, right? Do good. Sure, let let me ask you to think about a couple of things just as we finish up. Firstly, firstly, We can't continue without reflecting on fruitfulness. I want to encourage you guys to have a think. How intentionally fruitful is my life? How much do I cast my mind to the good things that God's prepared? Does it ever cross my mind? Am I investing in, am I laying down a foundation which is a pattern of being devoted to good? We need to reflect on our fruitfulness. I've got a little form which I put in the newsletter. I won't talk about it now because I'm out of time, but you can check that out. And a way to think about the areas you could devote yourself to, being, to doing good. Secondly, I want to suggest, it might be helpful to think about how new my life is. So some of you might be thinking, yes, I have a past, and it's not hugely different from my present. I want to suggest, it might be helpful to think about how new your life is. When I said before that we need to mind the gap, are there areas there that you and I need to work on bringing our life in line with the Word of God? Maybe repentance is in hand, maybe a change of pattern, maybe a pleading with God to free us from slavery to addictions. It might be helpful to think about how new my new life is. And thirdly and lastly, I want to encourage you to be devoted to looking for the good prepared. God, what have you got for me today? What a brilliant prayer that would be, right? Hey, God, another day. I'm delighted. I'm bouncing out of bed. That's all of you, right? Particularly in December. But what if we started the day by going, God, you know what? I'm feeling tired today. Um, Have mercy on me. But can you give me eyes to see the good you've prepared for me today? I want to choose to do that today for your glory. Wouldn't that be a great prayer? So in this next week, your practical application is to wake up and go, God, show me the good you've prepared for me to do today. Does that sound alright? Because here's the thing, guys. Wonderfully, tragically, there'll be more funerals in this place, won't there? There will be. And I'll stand up the the front here, and God willing, we will be able to point people to your Saviour. And when we do so, I want to be able to look everyone in the eye and say, they lived to the glory of God. They lived a fruitful life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. You give us a salvation we do not deserve. Help us to see, to be devoted to, to seek out the good you've prepared for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.